Coming up on this week's show, how to make your own homebrew Mega Drive development kit. The Amiga finally gets a decent Street Fighter 2 port. And we go inside Activision and acclaim with Rod Cousins. The Retro Hour podcast is brought to you each week with our good mates at Bitmap Books. Now, one of their books you should definitely check out is Commodore 64, a visual compendium, celebrating the vast library of games that made the C64 the most popular home computer of the 80s. You can check that out on the rest of their retro gaming books on their website, bitmapbooks.co.uk. Hello and welcome to the Retro Hour podcast, episode number 311, your weekly dose of retro gaming and technology news with me, Dan Wood. Me, Ravi Abbott. And me, Joe Fox. And a very warm welcome to the podcast that comes out every single Friday and takes you back to the classic days of video games, or as we like to call it, the golden age of gaming. Because, um, you know, we do get new people coming into this podcast all the time. And Ravi made a good point just before we started recording. He said, why don't we do a little uh, introduction for people that are just finding us for the first time? Because even though we've been going for six years now, every time we see our podcast rising up the Apple podcast chart, which, you know, happens most weeks, that means we're getting a big influx of new people coming through. So people are joining this ride all the time, aren't they? Yeah. And it's kind of crazy because we started this as an audio project, which was just like with the mad aim of interviewing somebody every single week. And uh, that would be anybody from the industry, uh, you know, the creatives, the kind of management behind it, um, you know, video game designers and stuff. And it's because these stories, you know, uh, really need to document them. And it's been a period of history that talking to these guests, we've realised so much has happened and it's happened so quickly that it's hard to kind of step back and get a, a picture of what's going on. And we really hope that the show kind of helps people get a picture and also, you know, works out the connections between different companies. Like the amount of knowledge that I've got from just doing this is absolutely insane. And amount of stuff that I've learned about systems and games that I've never really touched before, you know. Well, I think for us as well, the fact that we are all, all three of us, you know, lifelong video game fans. So for us doing this, I mean, for me, it was, you know, when we started this podcast, it was originally to try and find out the truth behind a lot of the rumours or the urban legends that I read in, you know, magazine articles and stuff back in the day to actually go to the, you know, the horse's mouth, as it were, and actually get the truth from the people that were there making the industry in its early days. Yeah, like the amount of times that I've seen that Moby Games is inaccurate and Wikipedia hasn't got the right information <laughs> off on it and stuff. And, you know, you see a lot of videos on YouTube and people repeating the same facts and stuff, but nothing beats actually going to the source and hearing what they say and kind of, you know, their ideas of what was going back on the in the day, even if they contradict each other as well. It's uh, yeah. just really exciting and for me, it was like looking at those game titles at the beginning, you know, the credits, and then thinking how many people we've had on the show that were actually <laughs> listed on those credits. <laughs> so, I mean, you know, the six years we've been doing this, we spoke to some uh, of our absolute gaming heroes, and today is no exception. Now, we're going to take you behind the scenes on some of the most legendary companies, you know, from over the last 40 years of gaming, um, including, and particularly, we're going to be focusing on uh, Activision, you know, their kind of uh, early days here in the UK, and also Acclaim as well. You're going to be covering from around 1991 up to the mid-2000s when Acclaim went bankrupt. And today we're going to be talking to 
Rod Cousins. And this, I, I've got to say, you know, from the six years we've been doing this podcast, this is already one of my favourite interviews we've ever done this week. We have these like distributors that uh, in the UK that would, you know, kind of repackage the games, send them out and stuff. And other companies didn't have that much of a presence. And uh, Rod's talking all about the kind of early days of getting different games, working with some of the top leading games, you know. And this whole period that we cover in this interview is absolutely mental. <laughs> it's like we, we managed to compress it down. And, and God, there's some awesome things that you've got as well, Dan. Finally got someone talking about Rise of the Robots. <laughs> which rise of the robots um because rod i don't think he talks about it that often you know as you said James, think said, anyone does. Actually, <laughs> he spoke about rise of the robots we do struggle to get people on to talk about that yeah you, you you did say uh but just before we started recording i'm not on this interview and you did say um we got some juicy stuff on rise of the robots and i was like oh wow nobody ever wants to talk about that and you know <laughs> you, you pointed out he did say you know what you've got to take the good with the bad so let's talk yeah. about you know it can't all it wasn't all perfect it wasn't all smooth sailing so um, that was really cool. Did you manage to ask him, though, about the uh, the Turok uh, Rage Wars uh, yes. competition? You did? Yes, I yep. did. Which oh, was, perfect. Uh, uh, yeah. <laughs> Don't spoil it. <laughs> <laughs> there, was some, there was some interesting gimmicky stuff that they did later on. <laughs> Love it. <laughs> Let's say in Activision, yeah. Yeah, so we go from, you know, the early days of the industry when he's working at Quicksilver, you know, on Jeff the, the computers, and... yeah, guys like him. So there's a load of stuff in this interview. You're going to really enjoy the story behind uh, what, what kind of went wrong with R-Type and porting that to the home systems as well and the drama behind all that. I mean, there's some fascinating tales, stuff we haven't heard before. So it's an honour to be joined by Rod Cousins. He'll be coming up on the podcast in around 25 minutes from now. Now, as well as bringing you legends, veterans of the industry on the show each week to get the inside story, we also update you on what's been happening in the world of retro gaming and technology each week as well. First half of the show is uh, the news that's been going on. Actually, you know, January is normally a pretty quiet time for retro gaming news, but actually it seems like there's quite a lot going on this month, including Nintendo, who are now offering retro gaming posters as part of the My Nintendo rewards. So, Tell us a bit about this, Joe. What's this about? So I've done my research, luckily. Bear with me here. I think I think I know how this works. So There's always a first. There's, there's, there's always not, a first. Um, they're not NFT posters, are they? No, they're, they're real posters, which is fantastic. So um, Nintendo of Europe are offering out rewards for their platinum points-like system. And we'll talk about the rewards first. So they've launched this week free retro N64 posters they've got a zelda ocarina of time poster a mario kart 64 one and a star fox 64 one or lilac wars um it, it is listed as star fox 64 but it's lilac wars and you know for us uk people but they look pretty cool they're like the the ocarina of time ones like kind of looks like custom artwork um and it, it, they really really look like you know of the era you know what you'd have in your room you know, when you were a teenager or, you know, a, a young kid back in the day with your favourite games plastered across the walls, you know, the Mario Kart 64 ones, like the box art, and the Star Fox 64 ones are really, really cool. And it, and I think it goes really well with the fact that they've recently launched, you know, the, the N64, you know, uh, on the Switch. So yeah. I think Nintendo are realising, like, that these games are really popular at the moment. There's, there's a lot of N64 games actually being re-released on the Switch and stuff like that at the moment. So... And they work well, actually. And, yeah, I've been playing they, some of them. They work really well. And, you know, it's not often I find 
you know, in the six years of us doing this, that Nintendo go back and look at these things. They, they usually just kind of push forward and they don't look in the rear view mirror. They just kind of, they don't tend to put these games back out or stuff like that. Not that they don't accept, you know, that these things have happened and celebrate them and stuff like that, but you don't see it that often. So it's really cool to see them doing it as one of their rewards. So I had to check out what are these rewards? You know, is it an NFT kind of thing? Is it something (laughs) you pay for? Did they come with posters originally? Like because some uh, games, yeah. So some games would come with posters and maps and stuff like that, or a map. You know, like GTA would come with a poster, but it's yeah, because I remember uh, even GTA on the PlayStation came yeah. with like a, a poster built in. Yeah, like on the flip side, but also yeah. PC games and stuff. Some of them would come with posters in the yeah. big box releases, but uh, console stuff did that. Yeah, some console games did it. So like you know. A lot of Nintendo games did it as well. I can't think any right now off the top of my head, but I know like Ocarina of Time, not Ocarina of Time, sorry, A Link to the Past, which was the Super Nintendo Zelda, did it. I don't think these games had posters that came with the games, but there definitely would have been posters of these games, I imagine, in Nintendo Power and stuff like that. So it's cool to see mm. and revisit them. Um, but in terms of the points, you ask, I wasn't too sure how you earned these platinum points. So they cost 500 platinum points for the set. So you get all three of them in the set, I believe, which is pretty cool. So I thought they might be points that you earn from buying like Switch games. You buy this Switch game and you get 100 points to like claim on the online store. But from what I understand, they're actually from completing like weekly tasks, like, you know, to do with playing games on your Switch and stuff like that. So like this week, for example, um, they've got you can get 300 platinum points from playing Animal Crossing by just linking your Animal Crossing pocket camp to your Nintendo account or you can get like 30 points from just activating uh, your account and you can also get it from like app games so like playing Toad Rally on Super Mario Run daily gets you 10 points for playing that so many days in a row and stuff like that so you know 100 points for just linking your Nintendo network ID to your Nintendo account you get 100 points for that so Mm. it's just from being a nintendo fan and playing nintendo games so obviously you've got to purchase the games and stuff in the first place and purchase apps on your on your phone and stuff like that but from just playing them and linking up your accounts and clearing world 2 on super mario world uh, and super mario run 2 will get you 50 points so i always got the impression that the you know the, the rewards were more to try to get people to play their mobile games, you know, stuff like Animal yeah. Crossing, Pocket Camp. Yeah. You can get for free yeah. on, on the App Store. And uh, I have seen some people <laughs> saying here as well that if you just download Animal Crossing on the iPhone, which is free, connect Twitter and Facebook, you get given 600 points oh, and you just get it off your phone. So there, there you go. go. There you go. It's quite easy to get. So it, it, it is to get people to play the mobile, mobile game apps yeah. and stuff like that. But it's Nintendo at the end of the day. That's, you know, it's a massive company. They're going to get you to do that. So... Um, and then you get gold reward points for actually doing in-game purchases and stuff like that. So it's good that they've got like the platinum and the gold separate and the platinum ones are the free ones and you do get rewards. You do have to pay for postage on on, on your rewards, which kind of makes sense. But it's good to see in the world that we live in at the moment that it's actual physical posters. And like Ravi says, it's not just NFTs. That yeah, it's, it's kind of like incentivized <laughs> gaming. So I yeah. saw um, Red Dead Redemption had one, which was like, you know, the multiplayer, which was it'd go online every day and you'll get this amount of gold or whatever. And um, I think it's probably because they've got stats, which have come back and said the amount of switch owners that aren't connected to this. So mm. smartly they've said, well, we'll just do a, poster thing 
and you know it's not going to cost as much but it incentivizes and it gets people to go in and actually do that physical thing link up their facebook account or or whatever so yeah it's it's a kind of nice way of doing it and you know you get a little bit back from something that you would previously not really get anything for so yeah i think i think it's all right i'm looking at this and thinking oh, it would be so cool if they just sold them yeah <laughs> you just buy it yeah, yeah. yeah. You just buy it yeah. <laughs> dan's just thinking i can't be asked to play these games <laughs> i just want to buy them and put them up in my wall <laughs> they do look really cool though don't they, they do look yeah, cool i really like the ocarina of time one that's really really cool yeah, and they'll probably be on eBay for like, you know, £100 or something next week. Anyway. There you go. I ain't paying that much, though, so <laughs> don't, no one get any ideas. So uh, we'll link up that story. If you want to find out how, how many rewards you need and how to get hold of them, you'll find it all in our show notes. We've got all the stories in there. You don't have to Google around. You'll find them at theretrohour.com or just check the uh, the text on your podcast app. They're all in there, too. Now, Street Fighter 2, obviously one of the most legendary fighting games of all time. Um, you know, Mainly for me, I remember, I know it came out on the Mega Drive and stuff like that. To me, it was always an arcade game first and really felt more at home on the Super Nintendo. I always classed it as a SNES game at home. Yeah. Although, we did get a port onto the computer that I had at the time, and I know you did as well, Ravi. The Commodore Amiga, how do you sum up the Amiga I version of Street Fighter 2? I thought it wasn't that bad, you know. It was, uh, the, the problem is it was like one button for everything. So you had tons of like combos and stuff uh, forever loading as well. Like switching discs between the characters was really frustrating. I think there was, there was worse ports of stuff that came later on and Amiga never really shined for like the, um, you know, the fighting game. So there were some good ones though, but uh, yeah, I, I, I don't think it, it did what it could have. And this, uh, this kind of really shows it. It's uh, a port we'd actually, talked about before which was just a proof of concept which had been made um um on pixel shade channel on youtube where they'd actually shown right i'm just going to recreate this scene on street fighter and kind of you know see what i can do see how much i can get it close to the arcade um i remember there was a whole thing about there was a street fighter 2 turbo came out on the amiga as well and there was a whole Mm thing years ago about cleaning it up and cleaning up the backgrounds and uh you know just making it run better and there was a whole like little modding scene on that because obviously it hadn't been ported over with like the love and care that someone can give it now but um that's also due to this awesome awesome engine that's come out for the amiga so all the games that are being released at the moment are being released by a a company called pixel glass and these are like you know, Worthy was one that recently came out. Metro Siege was another one that they've done. Uh, Dread as well, which is um, a really, really awesome kind of Doom clone as well. Metro Siege is that kind of Streets of Rage one. And this is all based on the Scorpion engine. And the idea of the Scorpion engine is it takes modern components and ideas and uh, kind of ways of doing it, like, you know, uh, converting the PNG files and stuff. And it targets the Amiga 500 so it's targeting like the lowest kind of um, powered Amiga that you can get and uh, I think that's really cool you know a lot of these ports came out with like you know you need an extra RAM expansion or accelerator card so um, using this uh, Scorpion engine have actually now made a playable demo of that well a tech demo of that um, Street Fighter kind of that we saw on youtube yeah and actually this looks really impressive especially compared to the release version 
that we got on the Amiga, which I, I know you mentioned then about the buttons and everything. The biggest complaint for me about the Amiga version was how bad the scrolling was. It was so jerky. I, yeah. I, was, I was about to say the, the scrolling on that version is just, just terrible, isn't it? Ruins the original yeah. port to the Amiga. Which, you know, back then it always baffled me why they put out such a substandard version. Well, also, it was such a big license. Well, I don't think they had this engine as well. So this engine was like with the pixel glass people, but it's also being used by this. Uh, this port is actually done by Nesso Games, uh, who did Super Delivery Boy for the Amiga as well. So um, there's lots of different people now using this engine and... Uh, yeah, I think I think they didn't have the technology developed behind it. It was just uh, uh, they didn't know all the tricks uh, that they do nowadays. But I remember, you know, stuff like um, was it Elf Mania. That was a great. Oh yeah, that that was game. done by demo coders though. They knew what they were doing. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's, oh, I from saying the hardware could do it blatantly. Back then, I remember reading like, "Oh, the Amiga's not powerful enough to run Street Fighter Two properly like the the Super Nintendo." And even looking at this, I mean, graphically, it looks like there's. I mean, it might just be my imagination i'm sure maybe you can look at it a bit more uh with fresher eyes joe you know it looks a bit then lower color than the the super nintendo version yeah the the amiga version looks a little washed out the original version compared mm. to like the super nintendo version and even the mega drive version um and my, my memories of the amiga version is um <laughs> going a bit off track here but it's on the episode of father ted you know the old channel four show yeah where yeah. Uh, father Dougal's playing it with like the bad boy uh, priest <laughs> and they're like playing the amiga version with the one button with the with the stick and i always remember thinking like why does that version look so choppy and washed out yeah. uh, <laughs> compared to you know and i'm more familiar with the super nintendo and the mega drive version than the arcade version but yeah the, the version that you know ravi's been talking about here uh you know the, the tech demo version of it it just it just kind of fixes everything that was wrong with the amiga version the original amiga version for me like mm. straight away, the color palette just looks so much better. It is not particularly super bright or anything like that, but it just looks more real, and just the tones in it are just so much nicer. And it just doesn't look washed out anymore. Like I know yeah. I keep so this that. this is targeted for the ECS computer, so yeah. um, uh, the ECS Amiga, which has a, a lower color palette. I think it's um, sixteen or uh, sixty-four for the ECS, and then um, the Amiga A. GA machines are like two five six colors, so if they did an AGA port, they could probably have it kind of in the nicer color. But I, I kind of like them targeting it for the five hundred because it was the most popular one, and it was the one that everybody had, you know. Mm. And I like the color palette in this. Yeah, like you said, Joe, it doesn't look too cartoony. Yeah, it gives it more of a, a gritty kind of look, which yeah. I quite like. And you can you can play this by the looks of it. This uh, downloadable ADF. Um, I haven't tried this yet, but I intend to this weekend. Looks like you, know, you can only play as every you and Ken in this. Um, yeah, it's not a finished game. And apparently, he's saying you know it's only meant to be a technical demo. Um, he said you know, copyright goes to the respective owners and everything as well. He's not going to make it into a full game, but he said uh, there's a little disclaimer in here. Maybe it can be an inspiration for someone to work on a full remake of the game. There you go. Hopefully, it happens then. Well, I think we've been seeing so many good titles coming out and, like, the foundations for stuff is there now. Um, so, you know, like, I, I just can't wait to see more stuff arrive and uh, ports get kind of cleaned up. And, yeah, it, it's just really exciting to see the kind of releases that are happening in the Amiga. And uh, especially working at the Amiga magazine, I'm seeing loads of stuff at the moment on Amiga Addict. It's like, wow. Well, that's the thing because I don't know what Capcom are like with their how harsh they go after fan projects. But it would be cool because, I mean, you know, obviously Capcom are never going to 
remake it for the uh, Amiga, Cap- so it would be nicer if they let the fans in, do In it. my experience, and we spoke about it before, uh, Capcom are pretty good. Like when Daymare came out, which was mm. a Resident Evil clone, that was a fan project being of Resident Evil 2, you know, people remaking it. And then Capcom contacted them and actually invited them down to the studio and said, look, we're actually making Resident Evil 2 remake. So, you know, you're doing really well with yours, but can you can you make it into something different? And they actually showed them yeah, some yeah. stuff. So Capcom are usually pretty respectful, I guess is the best word for it. So I guess and unless they're doing unless they're intending on putting out another Amiga version of of a Street Fighter, they'll probably just leave them to it, to be honest. So that's reassuring words for someone who might want to make this into a full game. I mean, hopefully. don't take that as gospel. I don't want to have Capcom. <laughs> you can blame Joe if he gets sued. Yeah, now. exactly. <laughs> so if you want to download that, it's an ADF file, you know, you come back in on a floppy disk or your, your GoTech or whatever. Um, I'll link that up in our show notes as well. Obviously, a lot of people are making new games for retro systems. Did you ever stop to think kind of what it was like, you know, if you were making a game back in the the retro days, you know, for example, making a Mega Drive game back in the late 80s, or early 90s, the kind of kit you'd need? Because obviously, back then, for consoles, really, it was these official development kits that you needed to get hold of. And we've talked to people on this podcast before about how expensive they often were to get the official ones. I mean, sometimes you're talking hundreds of thousands of dollars to get the official development kits you know back then and actually i'm looking through there is um a great article on retroreversing.com that details the amount of different mega drive slash genesis development kits that were around back in the console's heyday and there are loads of them in here as well i mean start with something called the uh the super mega drive um which was a very early development kit as well and this looks like it's really just a a massive circuit board. It looks like a huge old school PC pretty much, but with Mega Drive ports on there. And I know that some developers use stuff like, you know, the Mega PC or the Terra Drive mm. back then that were actual, you know, PCs and Mega Drives to make them. But the were looking at it, there were loads of different Mega Drive development systems that they made back then. But actually, this article here by a guy called um, Torre Nestinus, he's a guy who actually made his own Mega Drive hardware dev kit from scratch back in the early 90s because he couldn't afford one of the official ones and he wanted to make Mega Drive games at home. Now, I'll link up this article. It is pretty technical. I've got to say that, but it's very cool. I I, I thought when you linked us up to this, I thought he'd made it recently. I didn't realise he'd made it like back in the heyday of the Mega Drive. This was 30 years ago. Which is insane. This has got like hundreds if not thousands of like cables and stuff like that so he just did this he just did this from his own know-how um, you know there was no google or anything like that for him to jump on it's it's important well, this- because i i remember going and seeing uh, the guy who did tanglewood um mm, yeah. uh, big evil corp and uh he had a mega cd development kit as well that he was actually using and uh yeah it's it's, it's pretty amazing and he was like Oh, to get this dev quits really hard, and you know, he kind of kept it close to him and had it for years. So, um, yeah, it's interesting to see that you know maybe he can rework these designs or you know make it available for more people. What I love about it is, I mean, he was actually doing development on the Atari ten forty ste. So an Atari ST he was using, oh, which nice. obviously has the same um, CPU as a Mega Drive. You know, got the Motorola sixty eight K in there. So it kind of goes really in-depth. I mean, this article is several pages long, and it goes really in-depth technically. But this guy says, you know, really, he, he knew 68K assembly language, and he thought there must be a way that he can actually do the coding 
on the Atari ST and get it over to the Mega Drive. But obviously you had to kind of figure out stuff like how the Mega Drive handles cartridges, the, the interface between the cartridge and the, the RAM of the system as well. So really it did quite a bit of reverse engineering, not only of the Mega Drive, but also the cartridges and all the uh, the buffer chips in there as well. And he had to build his own PCBs. And uh, eventually what he got is his system. I mean, there's a few different prototypes and there's images of them all and in-depth explanations on how they all worked. But what he did is he actually made a, a PCB cartridge you could put into the Mega Drive that had a serial port on there, and he would do all the coding on his Atari ST and, and kind of down. squirt that over. Yeah, yeah. yeah, over onto an EEPROM that then he could run on the Mega Drive. And actually, he says he didn't actually make any Mega Drive games after he spent <laughs> so long getting all this together. <laughs> I think he exhausted himself by making uh, this. I, but, I was know, about to it? ask, did he actually make any games that came out or anything? But... Yeah, yeah pretty exhausted it, it, after that. He used a program called Turbo Assembler, uh, yeah. Turbo bleh, Assembler on the on the ST. Yeah, yeah, and there's also he talks about how he makes some music for it as well. A program called um, Audio Sculpture, which was a sound tracker. Um, so you know, it's really interesting if you want to see because, like you said, Joe, in that pre-internet era, mm. even someone who makes kind of Mega Drive games using emulation today and getting it on the original hardware, I think, is pretty cool. But the fact that someone was doing this, you know, homebrew style. 30 years ago in his bedroom. That is pretty hard. Not to upset the guy if he's listening or anything, but it the fact that he never actually made any games on it, maybe he it doesn't work. <laughs> he's just <laughs> he's just got a load of circuitry and just made it look like it works. I'm joking, of course, but You cynic Joe. I'm joking. <laughs> Now, before we get into our chat with that Rod Cousins, let's take a quick break and give a big thank you to one of our sponsors because, you know, at the moment, we're getting ready, and I can't believe we're saying this, you know, first time in, uh, God, over two years, we're getting ready for some live events again. We are dipping our toe into the water of going to events again, aren't we? Yeah, we're going to be going to the Doncaster Gaming Market at the end mm. of February, um, and Ravi's even staying overnight for that one because you're going to be hosting a table, aren't you? Um, <laughs> and I'm going to be dipping my toe uh, in some potentially some other ones um, up north later in the year. Um, and Ravi's even hosting one. Um, yeah, I'm hosting one, and I'm also going to uh, VCF East in uh, yeah. New Jersey in America. So uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah, we're, we're all kind of excited and uh, getting ready to 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 come out of the house and emerge. I think yeah, we're talking the other day that we've all booked flights and we've got stuff planned we're going abroad again this summer you know we're going to be doing yeah it's crazy places, so. <laughs> it is amazing so you know the world is opening up again which is incredible and um our friends at harry's now obviously they've been big supporters of the retro hour podcast and you know you might have heard us talking about their incredible razors before and what a great shave to give you but actually harry's they're here to revamp your whole routine they do a lot more than just razors including obviously the close shaves they do you know give you flake free hair all the way to clear healthy skin harry's is here to help guys feel good. Now we want you to get a free travel sized shower gel with a trial set and give them a try to improve your morning routine. Now particularly if you've got you know holidays coming up and maybe you're going to be traveling again. With this you'll get their expertly engineered weighted handle, a one five blade cartridge crafted by artisans in their own German factory, complete with a precision trimmer, a handy foaming shave gel for effective lubrication. You get the travel blade cover with, you know, everything you need for life's adventures in there as well. A free shower gel, which we're including for retro listeners as well. And I know us guys have been fans of Harry's anyway. You always said, Joe, I, mean, I think you used to use an electric razor, but then switching to Harry's, it gives you a really close shave, you know, something that you, I know, kind of change your life when you use it. Yeah, so, you know, I... I tend to keep a beard because of I am terrified of shaving because I get such yeah. bad acne and cysts 
from shaving. And whenever I've used Harry's, it's actually been really smooth. And I don't know if that's just down to the razor or if that's down to the gel that comes with it. But either way, the combination of it, it just works really well with my skin, which is a particularly sensitive skin. So I've always found and trusted that Harry's actually does give me a really, really good shave without any of the mess that comes with it. Not that I've kissed you on the cheek, Joe, after you've shaved with Harry's, but it looks baby smooth. It does look baby smooth. It knocks 10 years off me, put it that way. <laughs> and obviously stuff like cleansing and exfoliating before you shave, you know, that increases the chances of cleaner results as well. And their products are formulated with zero sulfates, no parabens, dyes, they're alcohol-free as well, no nasties in them as well. So we will need to take up this incredible offer and give Harry's a try. Let them transform your morning mood routine. I mean, there's nothing like, you know, you could have a shower and a shave at the same time, you know, get out of the house quicker. Perfect if you go on a holiday, get this in your travel case. So if you want to support the Retro Hour, get your own shower shave kit right now by redeeming a free Harry's trial set. All you need to cover is the £3.95 for delivery. They will sort everything else. So head to this website right now, harrys.com slash retro. Have your set delivered and start a shave plan. Your freebie is going to be added at checkout. So no codes or anything to remember. Just make sure that you use our exclusive link so they know that we sent you. That's harrys.com slash retro. And a big thank you to our good mates at Harry's for their support of the Retro Hour podcast. Now, of course, Patreon is the lifeblood of this show. You know, we have sponsors some weeks, but Patreon is really what keeps this podcast coming out every single Friday. And I think it's fair to say, we've mentioned it before, that we couldn't do this show if it wasn't for our loyal patrons, could we? Not at all. And like the community is so nice as well. I really, I really enjoy like chatting to our patrons. We just did a, a patrons chat, which was absolutely awesome. Uh, the hangout and uh, we do the after hours podcast as well, which uh, we just recorded this week. And we've, oh, we've hit episode 20 of the after yeah. hours podcast. So if you support us on Patreon, you will get 20 episodes extra. Yeah, and we covered the year 1993. And I think before we went into that, because, I mean, the, the After Hours podcast, we kind of do lots of different stuff, but every other episode is like looking at one year in gaming and tech. And 93, my God. You know, we started looking at that, me and you, Joe, we, we, we were looking, you know, through online and talking about, you know, stuff that we remember from that year. But it was, there was just so much happened in 1993. We could have done like a five-hour podcast about it, it that. It was so much. I mean, it felt it, it felt like we, we ran over massively on there. But like the episode went out today and you said it came back sounding absolutely fantastic. But like you say, we just could have talked for hours and hours and hours about yeah. 1993. And, you know, so, some <laughs> really, really obscure, you know, failed systems came out that year. Um, so none of, none of the big three came out that year, but there was just so much to talk about. And I did absolutely love our patrons hangout, as Ravi pointed out, uh, which we did this Sunday just gone. You know, and we we do talk retro and we share what retro things we've bought recently and stuff like that. But we always go off on a tangent talking about horror films, VHS, anything like that. But this week we were talking about nuclear bombs and nuclear fallout and what we would all do and stuff <laughs> like that. And, it, and you know, it, it just feels like, you know, there's like 30 of you, 30 of you sat around a table at the pub all just having a chat and, you know, yep. it just works. You know, nobody talks over each other or anything like that. It just works really, really well. And, you know, it's been abs- something amazing to look forward to every month. Yeah, so you can join us for that. All patrons are welcome, obviously. Um, gold members and above get the After Hours podcast each month as well. Uh, I must admit, this month has been probably the quietest month we've ever had on Patreon in terms of new signups. I think our last one was uh, Mike, 
on a January the 9th. So, uh, I mean, it's been a quite few weeks. We get that, you know, um, a lot of people are still a bit skint after Christmas and everything. But if you would like to support us, it does make a big difference. And obviously, just make sure that we can cover all the running costs of doing this show. We're not paying for doing it out of our own pocket. And uh, you get all those perks as well. You also get the normal podcast early. You get it ad-free as well. And uh, also, you get exclusive stories. And uh, actually, we're going to be dropping a full exclusive interview show for our patrons in a couple of weeks' time as well. So we'd love you to join us on there. Come see us on the Hangouts too. All the details to send up to our Patreon. You can do it for the cost of a cup of coffee once a month. That's all it takes to keep this podcast going, and you'll find all the details at theretrohour.com. Right then, let's get into some amazing stories going inside classic companies like Activision and Acclaim and lots more as well. With this week's special guest, Rod Cousins is next on the Retro Hour podcast. You're listening to the Retro Owl Podcast, and it is time for the main event, then the bit of the show that we all look forward to, where we welcome on a veteran of the video games industry to get some stories about, you know, what happened in the industry back in the heyday, those early days when it was just kind of finding its feet. And our guest today has worked for some of the biggest companies in gaming history, including Acclaim, Activision, Codemasters, Quicksilver back in the 80s as well. Let's welcome on the legendary Rod Cousins. How you doing, Rod? I'm very well. Thank you. And thank you for the introduction. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, we really appreciate you taking some uh, time to share your memories with us. And uh, we always like to kind of go back to the beginning with our guests and find out, you know, what initially got them into video games in general. I mean, do you remember your first gaming experience and where you first discovered it? I do. Uh, I was loitering in pubs in the, at that time and there was a coin-op machine and uh, it had this game on it called Breakout. And uh, it used to very successfully extract money from me as I pursued levels to get to the ultimate goal. That got me hooked on gaming. And I went from there into uh, home computers with the advent of Sinclair ZX81. And uh, and that was my uh, first role at Quicksilver, really. So did you have any machines yourself at home? Uh, yeah, I had uh, I had some uh, very primitive machines, um, including the old uh, Atari Twenty Six Hundred, and I actually also had an Imagic console uh, back in the day, a very rare thing. But I, the the one that really took it, and it's true what, how it describes it, into the home was the ZX eighty uh, one, and mainly as a consequence of the people I knew and worked with, and the things that you were we were able to do it because it was a combination of skills that really started to uh, open up us being in the gaming market and uh, going off doing things. Did you have any uh, experience typing in those codes and kind of doing Uh, your own programming? (laughs) Yeah, I did and got unbelievably frustrated. I used to copy, you know, take all the prints out of the magazines in those days and laboriously enter them and then find they didn't work properly and would have to start again or try and figure it out. So, uh, but we did occupy a lot of time doing things like that. Yeah. And even trying to get stuff typed in on that ZX81 keyboard was a challenge yeah, and a half. <laughs> yeah, it, it was, you're absolutely right. But uh, I didn't have the biggest thumbs and fingers, so I probably had some advantage over others. But it absolutely was. And then when it didn't register and you had to try and figure it out because you'd gone on and had to go back. Yeah, all these wondrous things. But we were committed. We were real pioneers in those days. 
Yeah, it must have just felt magical that kind of first time you managed to get a program running and something happening on your television. Yeah, it, the whole aspect of it was magical because you realised that something was happening and it was so exciting to be part of it. When people talk today about, you know, disruptors, uh, whether that's technology companies or whatever, the true disruptors were back in those days because the industry didn't actually exist as such. And we all used to assemble at the horticultural halls in Westminster where, you know, we had booths which were little more than trestles with planks across them covered in black felt. And, uh, you know, we all use, and it was very, very friendly, um, you know, it was, whether it was Quicksilver, Bugbite, Salamander, Silversoft, all these companies that were around. And Britain was leading the way. And mm. there was a real feeling about it. And the brakes would be stale sandwiches upstairs with a beer and loading up cars with tapes. And it, it was great. It was a, a magical time. It really was that kind of cottage industry stuff and um how, how did you end up then kind of entering the industry and uh, joining quicksilver well a friend of mine who was an electrical engineer um who i'd been at school with he introduced me to a guy called nick lambert who was one of the original founders and i met him and uh when people talk about the meeting, it was uh, I was looking for a company. I was driving along. I found this terraced house in a part of Southampton. No name. I knocked the door. This guy with long blonde hair down to his knees, an Aaron sweater with holes everywhere and jeans came to the door. And I told him I was looking for Nick Lambert. And he said, you found him, man. And uh, he said, come in. And he made me a cup of coffee of this grimy old cup off of uh, a side and it was so hot otherwise I'm not sure I'd have stayed and around it the phone never stopped ringing it was a sketch where I'd start talking then I'd be interrupted start talking then I'd be interrupted but that was really the start I got on very well with him and we started working together on bits and pieces um, what he did was his initial thing was to build ramp packs for the ZX81 and uh, about half past three, 20 to four at night, all these kids would come in from the local school and put them in jiffy bags because we'd sold them mail order and we had all the money up front. And then he had a friend called John Hollis and John Hollis, who's a, so a software engineer, wrote a basic game that we could embed in the RAM packs. And uh, so it went from that and around it, another friend was Mark Isles um, and he did the marketing. Uh, for the company and uh, you know great strides were made when we did our first full color inlay in the pack uh, we were terribly excited about all of that so that was how it came together it was a, a group of guys in Southampton working out of uh, friends properties in the end and putting this company together and when we'd written a new game drive up to London to take duplicating company and have them manufactured on cassette and drive back that was it I know the Quicksilver released, um, you know, it was mainly Commodore 64 and Spectrum games, but I know there were conversions and uh, original games for the VIC-20, the Dragon, yeah. the Auric Atmos and the BBC Micro and the Electron. Was it hard, like, covering such a big range of machines and handling all these conversions? Because they all have different capabilities, didn't they? Yeah, it was hard, but the reason we did it was it, in those days we would place an ad looking for games, 
and we were offering 25% royalties, which was a big deal. And all these kids, they, you know, you were talking about, you know, bedrooms and single guys being able to program. So all these kids came forward with different skills on different machines. And so rather than constrain it, we started to cross-fertilize ideas, introduce them to each other, and uh, seeing whether they could use code, not use code, seeing what their programming strengths were. And, uh, and it wasn't as hard as it, from a technical point of view as it was from an introductory point of view in making them gel. I mean, it was like being a welfare place because I had their mothers calling me, you know, right. and uh, and so forth, making sure they weren't up to no good or making sure that we were taking care of them and feeding them properly. And half of these guys were moonlighting at university. Um, but that was what made it. That's what made it great. Obviously, Grid Runner um, yeah. by Jeff Minter, yeah. who's you know gone on to become a, another legend in the industry, yeah. as a a big hit. I mean, what was kind of the story behind that game then and the acquisition? Yeah, well, he. I mean, we were local, right? He was in Basingstoke, and uh, you know, I was in Southampton. He had Commodore sixty four uh, um, skills or Commodore skills. Um, you know, he was he was always out there. He'd been ill, he'd been hospitalized, and while in hospital, um, this really piqued his interest. Around it, interestingly enough, as the company Quicksilver grew, our accountant knew his mother and Hazel Minter and connected us. And so I got together with Jeff Minter. I drove up to Basingstoke or Aldermaston, just outside Basingstoke, and just hung out with him. And I thought he was a very out there, talented guy with some real vision. And it was we were stronger on Sinclair than we were on Commodore. And so it was a complimentary thing. He wasn't that interested in the publishing side of life, really. So we took more of the weight of that away from him and let him concentrate on designing games. And we were prepared to give him a big canvas, you know, and exploit his ideas. And uh, it, it was a great relationship. I mean, uh, I still I still think a lot of him uh, to this day and think he was one of the true visionaries in our industry, you know, often criticized, not necessarily as commercial as he could have been, true to his principles. I mean, he was always slightly, his ideas and everything were always slightly wacky and his love of llamas, um, which was real, you know, that was always a talking point, but he never sold himself out. You know, he was never like that. He would follow through on his vision and his dreams, and he's true to his principles. Well, Ant Attack was another revolutionary yeah. game at the time. Um, that was that like a Spanish company that you guys did a deal with, and then no, that was Bugaboo in Spain. Ant Attack was Sandy uh, up at Sandy White up oh, yeah. in uh, up in Scotland, and that was that was another hysterical thing because. Um, when I talked about we advertise for games and so forth, that came in the post in a jiffy bag, just literally that. We were in Southampton and we had a, a product manager called Paul Cooper and uh, it, it arrived in a jiffy bag. I was sat one floor up and he came running up 
you know, could barely contain his breath. He said, you've got to see this. You've got to see this. And uh, went downstairs and loaded it up. And that was Antitac. Now, he'd also submitted it at the time to Scion. And they hadn't responded to him. And he lacked confidence. So he thought no one was interested in it. And we couldn't believe it. And he had a girlfriend who was great at art. They were both up there in Edinburgh Art School, I think it was, and uh, Angela Sutherland. And I called them and I said, we like the game. And could I come up and see them? And you could feel the suspicion down the phone. He said, why? Why do you want to do that? And I said, well, we really like the game. And uh, he said, well, you know, you don't need to come all the way up here. And I said, well, okay, I'll tell you what we'll do. We'll fly you down and I'll pick you up from the airport and um, drive you down to Southampton and we can hang out together and you can see if you like us and take it on from there. And he said, you know, why do you want to spend that money? And uh, <laughs> uh, he was they were very suspicious. Anyhow, I did persuade him to fly down. And in those days, when he walked into Heathrow, the baggage carousel, you could walk straight into the baggage carousel. He said, how will, how will I know you? And uh, I mean, it was as simple as this and as corny as this. Um, I said, I'll stand by the baggage carousel holding a copy of the Daily Mirror. And I didn't, <laughs> I didn't know how many other people would, would be there in that same <laughs> position. But he found us and I, I drove them both down to Southampton. We got on really well. John Hol- they liked John Hollis a lot. They liked Nick a lot. And it, it blended as people. And uh, I told them we wanted to sign it. And I knew if they went back, we stood a chance of losing the game. So uh, I said, we'll put you up in a hotel in Southampton and you can think about it. And he said, why do you want to do that? Why, why do you want to spend this money? I said, look, you're down here now. And if we're going to work together, just think about it. I said, you don't have to hang out with us. Just think about it. Anyhow, that's what happened. And uh, they signed and the rest is history. And when it went out there with those Escher like graphics, I mean, mm-hmm. people were astounded by it and people were, it, you know, I had there was a DJ on Radio 1 at the time, and they were doing a very early feature on games, and Tony Blackburn was going, how can you do graphics like this? How can you have graphics like this? It's amazing. And the only other thing that came close thereafter was, you know, Ultimate Play the Game, which became Rare and the Stamper Brothers and uh, stuff like that. So uh, halcyon days, and we did great stuff. And as I said, groundbreaking stuff. These were not – this was all really original and different – a different steer well it was was the first um isometric game basically it was a 3d soft solid was the kind of technology that he developed and patented as well i think yeah that's exactly right to tell you how far reaching this was a man who you know has been very influential in the field of uh video games in the uk and indeed on the global stage is a guy called chris deering who ran playstation and when he started off life in games, he was at a company called Spinnaker. And uh, I went out to see uh, to CES in Chicago and met him. And he looked at me and he said, Quicksilver, 
Antitac. How do we get the distribution rights for that game? And that conversation, so he recognized early, but that conversation forged a lifelong uh, relationship uh, in all guises. And also, you have to remember that this was a linear game and he was dealing on a format which was early floppy disks. So, um, you know, for him, he knew all about it. And, and uh, as I say, we had a common uh, interest from there on in. Well, um, Quicksilver also published their first um, licensed game, uh, The Snowman, obviously, which is now uh, you know an adapted part of Christmas now, you know, from watching the, the, the cartoon series. And it was a book by Raymond Briggs. I mean, what was kind of the backstory there and uh, yeah. and that game? Yeah. We did do all that stuff, and we, as I say, we tried to venture into areas that others didn't get. And bearing in mind, this was a period um, where there was no readily available data. Most of it was intuitive for, you know, friends and so forth. Today, I mean, data scientists and analysts play a big role in the decision-making process. And uh, but back then, it was very much intuitive, and uh, and. Quicksilver, as I say, was pooling of friends' skills, and one of which was an artist um, who we used to do a lot of our covers, a guy called Dave Rowe. And his wife uh, had also done books, you know, done the uh, art in books, etc. Very fairy tale, picturesque, that type of thing, very fine, detailed art. And she was taught in Brighton by Raymond Briggs. And Dave Rowe, when Snowman came out and was a massive success on TV, Dave Rowe said, why don't we go and speak to Raymond Briggs and see if he'd be interested in, um, you know, putting it on a on a home computer. And that's what we did. He was fantastic. He He was more interested in getting it done than any commercial deal. And he gave us the rights, and uh, and we did it. And uh, we launched it in a theatre in Leicester Square, and uh, he came along to that. And my introduction to it was spread-eagled on the stage uh, with a mic in my hand because we had this backdrop, very corny, of snow and snowmen and things like that. And uh, and that was how we did the thing. And uh, he worked together with us, and uh, and it was great. Well, I know there was some talk at the time about, you know, Quicksilver may be doing a video game version of uh, Briggs' uh, other well-known work, you know, When the Wind Blows, which um, was that something you decided was just a bit too sensitive to, to release on it as a game? Uh, it was really the commercial side of it more than anything else. I mean, there were a number of things that we were trying to do. We were pretty adventurous. For example, we did the game with the Thompson Twins, yeah. And uh, that was also adventurous. But these things, when you're involving third parties like that, only come about when all the commercial terms can make sense. And it's one thing having the original author, you've then got the publisher, and you know you go down things like that. Plus timing was an issue. And so uh, you know events conspired against us, really. But yeah, we looked at a lot of things like that. I mean, we actually even did, funnily enough, a darts game with Eric Bristow. So uh, and he was easy to do. And we did um, a Rupert game, you know, and I then discovered that 50% of the rights of Rupert were owned by Express Newspapers and 50% was owned by Paul McCartney because as he was growing up, he was a huge Rupert Bear fan. And he then had the Frog Song going out in the charts. So I had to go up to MPL to, uh, to meet them and we put the game together. Together and he was he was pretty enthralled by it. And this is, you know, very early eighties. 
Well, you mentioned the um, the Thompson Twins adventure as well, which was, you know, Thompson Twins, a group, they, they had Dr. Doctor yeah. um, in the charts at the time. And that was actually released as a, um, a flexi disc yeah. mounted on the uh, cover of um, CMVG magazine. Yeah. What was kind of the story there? And why did you decide on uh, that kind of method of distribution then? That was quite unique at the time. Well, you know, cover mounts were becoming more pre- prevalent. Um, and, it, you know, it, the side effect of that was an adverse reaction to retail. And in those days, people like W.H. Smith and Boots were a big deal. And they were trying to block cover mounts because they felt, or they were suggesting or discouraging us from doing it because they felt it impacted uh, on the game sales and so forth. Uh, original cover mounts had very, you know, they were like a trailer. Right. But in trying to outdo one another, more games companies were putting more and more and more content on it. So the idea became and this was put forward um, by Tim Metcalf, who was the editor of Computer Video Games at the time. And he said, because I'd talked about music and games and so forth. He, he said, why don't we try something different? And if we can go and get an artist, if they'll do it and they'll agree to it, that would be one thing. But then we have to get a a games company that could develop it and publish it so as to speak and then use the you know because magazine uh, distribution was only one specific part a lot of the magazines weren't international so there were all these things to consider and he came up with the idea of the thompson twins i went down to meet the three of them and their manager at the bottom of the new king's road and they were really up for it unbelievably creative uh, great to work with we're not prima donnas didn't uh, you know dictate things to us but wanted to work with us and uh, and then we found uh, a guy that would program it who could work with them and uh, we were late and that was the interesting thing. So it, it, it wasn't without its hiccups, but it was very adventurous. And we pulled it all off. And uh, in many ways, it's thanks to Tim Metcalf at Computer Video Games and his forward thinking on it. But uh, we we just believed in, you know, the coming together of aligned entertainment industries. That we're there to entertain, right? And uh, 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 the obstacles to it, I mean, that was a very early lesson in for me in discovering that the obstacles to it wasn't generally the artist, but the record labels, you know, and getting to the artists, if you could do that, and you could allow creative juices to to run was was for the most part. I mean, I know there's adverse stories about it, but for the most part, that was work. But the record labels, uh, you know, didn't rate games, saw it as a bit of a threat, and and so forth. And of course, today all they want to do is to break new acts through video games. Uh, we were thwarted by them all, so we all went off and built our own recording studios and did things like that created our own music, all of which came in-house, and uh, they paid a price for that, you know, and you, you look at where video games are today and where music is today. Back then, they had, like, a lot of newspaper groups as well that were yeah having their own video game divisions. So uh, Mirasoft was one that we've talked about before. And um, Argus Press Software yeah, was another yeah. one from the Argus yeah. group. And um, they ended up taking over Quicksilver and kind of transitioning into glam, uh, Grand Slam. What was it like back then when that happened? <laughs> I remember talking to uh, a famous guy in Formula One when his um, team got sold to an American conglomerate, one of the largest motor manufacturers in the world. And his description to me was it was a bad day at the office. 
And that would be my description of, of that arrangement. I mean, you know, obviously they did have magazines in the gaming space. They were pretty ambitious. They had an alternative uh, weekly uh, magazine to Popcom Weekly run by a guy called Paul Liptrot. And so we looked at it. And actually, you talk about at the introduction with a great friend of mine, Nick Alexander. The other interested party was Virgin, who'd entered the fray. Um, Argus Press Software decided that they should be in in games publishing, and they came after Quicksilver. Nick, uh, Nick uh, Lambert, one of the founders, had now decided that it was a business um, that he was uncomfortable with. He was traveling the world. He, his involvement on a day-to-day basis had diminished. And so I called him and uh, told him about this, and I asked him what he wanted to do. And he, he he said to me, how much will I make out of it? And I told him and he said, well, can you give me that out of the company? And I said, no. And he said, well, I think we should sell it. And essentially, that's what happened. QS was based in Southampton with a group of uh, free spirited people that had developed a chemistry together that worked. And um, they wanted it. You no know, sooner they bought it, they wanted to take it up to London. I told him it wouldn't work that easily. And they said, well, you know, now you're on the other side. It's your job to make that happen. But I'd also had inserted in my employment agreement with them that they couldn't move me within the 12-mile radius of Southampton. And so I went up to tell him I wasn't going to move. He said, go out and have lunch. Think about it. Don't be stupid and come back. And uh, I went out and had lunch. I called my lawyer and he said, tell him to get lost. I went back in and told him to get lost and I left. So that was, uh, and, you know, they then didn't really do anything with the company because the heartbeat of the company, it wasn't just me, Mark Isles, Paul Cooper, guys like this had gone. And they it, it came under the stewardship of a guy called Ron Harris. Nothing happened with it. And, uh, and they basically got rid of it to Grand Slam Entertainment. And uh, it was sad. You, you hear that so often, you know, we hear stories about larger companies acquiring small creative teams, you know, when they take the people out of it. It's the heart and soul and all the creativity's gone, hasn't it? It's just a name then. And it, it's bizarre to me how, how many of these big companies didn't realise that at the time. Yeah, they didn't back then. Um, and, uh, you, you know, you, they were buying something that, wasn't manageable in a corporate world and yeah. adopting their culture, their processes, their checks and balances. And you also have to understand that most of these companies of the day were early public companies. And uh, mm. and for gaming companies that had come up by their bootstraps that hadn't had any experience of that, it was a mismatch. I would say it's a lot better today. It's not perfect. There are still notice, notable uh, instances of uh, things that have gone wrong. Um, but it is better. And I guess it could well have been better under the culture of Virgin because, you know, that's what Richard Branson epitomized. But, you know, that's life. It didn't happen. And uh, we go on from there. Well, yourself and um, Paul Cooper, after Quicksilver, you went to establish Electric Dream Software um, in 1985. So um, what was kind of the story with that then and, and getting that started? Well, partly Sandy White. 
because he was doing a follow-up game which was called Eye of the Mask. And he sent me this artwork, which was a triangular sort of depiction of my head in various colours. And he put at the top, I, meaning me, and then of the mask, because the the image was masked. And I thought, what the hell is this? And uh, he called. I called him and he said, it's our next game. And so around that, what I was actually looking to do was by this time, Quicksilver had been distributed by CBS Records, now Sony Music. And that was one of the things that gave us global distribution. And and you have to remember, this is at a time when nothing existed. And instead of building it in each territory, we used um, record labels and uh, it was CBS. And um, they distributed ColecoVision and a firm in the States called Epics, E-P-Y-X, uh, who had summer games, winter games, um, Impossible Mission, uh, other bits and pieces, all great software. And CBS told me they were pulling out of the marketplace, as were Epics. So I flew to San Francisco to get the rights to the products in Europe and on non supported formats such as Sinclair and uh, and so forth. And when I arrived in, at the day before I left, a headhunter called me uh, about becoming uh, head of Europe for a US software company. And I said to him, well, which company? And he said, oh, client confidentiality. We can't, you know, disclose that. And I said, well, is it professional software as it's called then, or is it games? And he said, no, it's games. I said, well, it's Activision because Activision were the only ones. And he said, well, I couldn't possibly say. So anyhow, I flew out to San Francisco. I'm staying at the uh, Fisherman's Wharf uh, Marriott. And uh, 8 o'clock in the morning, my phone rang, and it was Greg Fishback of Activision at the time. And uh, he said, you know, um, we're looking for someone to head up our European operation. And I said, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, he said, what are you doing in San Francisco? And I didn't want to tell him exactly what I was doing. So I said to him, I'm starting a new company. I'm out here sourcing software. He said, okay, great. Boom, 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 ended conversation. Later on that day, he called me and he said, uh, I've been thinking about what you've been saying. And I said, yeah. He said, how would you like to be funded? And uh, I said, yeah, that's pretty appealing. He said, well, if it is, you've got to come down and see me. So I drove down to Mountain View, walked into the office. And bearing in mind, I hadn't got Epics and I didn't have a company. And I told him I was going to do all this stuff with you know, software that's directed at Europe, whereas disk-based software was really limited. And that was the start of Electric Dreams. And I then went off and signed things like Eye of the Mask. I did various other products. And I used Activision's distribution. And I also picked up products out of Japan, such as Super Sprint and and so forth. And as a consequence, uh, you know, at the time, I mean, Activision had some really uh, pioneering product like Alter Ego, but it wasn't selling in Europe in any great volume. So Mm -hmm. the business that we had outperformed the parent. And so they then asked me to run the whole thing. So that's how that came about. I was wondering, like, repackaging games and kind of making them appeal to the European market, what what did you have to do differently? 
Oh, it's, uh, I mean, you had, a lot of it was a redesign of a game. As I said, it was linear versus random. And so you had to set out a pretty rigid story. Uh, I mean, you wouldn't do anything like that today. And to give an example of it, it Activision had the rights to Lucasfilm, Rescue on Fractulous and, uh, and things like this, and they wanted them on the spectrum. So between Activision, LucasArts and ourselves, we had to rewrite it in a way that you could put it on tape and the game would evolve. I mean, in my view, it was never quite as good, but we did the best we could. And actually, the volume we got out of those, I think there was Idol on Rescue on Fractulous, a couple of others. uh, We did pretty well um, with it. So a lot of it involved more than anything else a redesign of the game mechanics so that they would uh, run on a tape. And obviously the other side is you had memory constraints. Well, I know that R-Type, um, yeah. know, legendary, one of the most yeah. legendary shooters of the 80s, and that was a massive title. I mean, what kind of what was the story there? Because I heard it had a bit of a kind of troubled development cycle with the original version being shelved and then Manfred having to port it in like six weeks or something. What, what was the real story there? Yeah, I mean, that was through Irem out of Japan, and uh, they were not the easiest to... I mean, I, I used to... I had a great and still have a great relationship with Japanese companies because you have to invest the time. Um, when I was at Activision, I mean, I was grateful that they I, they would fund me going out there. And I would come back and sit in quarterly reviews and the CEO would look up and say, well, and what business have we got out of Japan this quarter? And I would say none. And they would look heavenwards. But then once I'd gained their trust and broke through and started to work with Nintendo, Sega, Capcom, Konami, you know, Namco as a standalone and you know they didn't go anywhere else because I was always going out there I didn't run away I earned their trust and you know so we became first port of call for many of the Japanese companies and I met Irem and obviously our type we loved our type and it was exactly you know we were we in video games we were the ill-disciplined rock and roll guys of the mix and you know make no apologies for that because if anyone was to say anything i would say i did it with style and flair and there was a lot about irem that was troublesome behind the scenes in terms of their involvement in certain you know groups and so forth and so yeah i mean that that was the, you know, there are many attempts. They'd failed. They hadn't come through. It wasn't always technical, although it was a technical challenge. It was often very much personality clash and not being able to work with them. But we could work with them. And um, and then we t- we had uh, access to developers that could, could make it happen very quickly. And uh, that's what we did. Also going for the kind of European market, especially with like the Amstrad and stuff, were there many... Uh, language translations that you had to do or like regional options to put into the titles? Yeah, I mean, it was really, you know, it's four, wasn't it? It's English, French, German, Spanish, you know, uh, that type of thing. And really, for the most part, it was for us, which was Spectrum. Germany wasn't the biggest market. It was PC was more than 50% of the German market and then Commodore. And so we really focused on France and Spain, which apart from Sinclair, you know, when Amstrad entered the market, those were some of their strongest um, sectors. And interestingly enough, in 
the the very first international distribution deal I did was in Spain with a firm called Indiscomp, Jose Luis Dominguez. And um, I, I was looking for overseas distribution. I knew that Sinclair was out there. And so I flew out to Madrid and I had no relationships. So I was walking around retail, finding computer stores. And I walked into this one and I, I got chatting to the guy who could speak a bit of English. And I said, where do you where do you buy your product from? How do you get it? Who who's the you know wholesaler or distributor and uh, so forth? And he was telling me he just goes around fairs and picking it up. And I told him who we were and what I was looking to do. And I needed a distributor in Spain. And he said to me, "I'll be your distributor in Spain." And that is exactly what happened. We gave him the rights to our line at Quicksilver. And then one day he uh, called me and he said there were some Spanish developers that had written this game that he thought we may be interested in. So he came to London with it and the game was called La Pulga, The Flea. And we loved it. Anyhow, so we signed a deal and we got the rights to La Pulga, The Flea, which became Bugaboo. Right now, life goes on, and Amstrad entered Spain and it wanted a, a distributor, so it bought Indiscomp. And Jose Luis Dominguez uh, became the managing director of Amstrad España. And Amstrad published La Pulga, for which we had the rights. And so I sent in those days a telex to Alan Sugar and said these were ours, and he promptly told me in no uncertain terms uh, to get lost. Um, right. We didn't do anything more about it. Um, but uh, that was how we entered uh, Spain. That was how we picked up Spanish product. And I read an interview recently with Jose Luis Dominguez, which was conducted down in Mallorca on his boat, and his boat is called Bugaboo. So, uh, <laughs> you know, so there you go. I was wondering, did other companies kind of see the American market or the Japanese one as a bit more sophisticated and superior than the European one or looked down on it at the time? Uh, they definitely saw it. Well, it was bigger. I mean, you know, I mean, if you regionalize the thing, bearing in mind it was cut into three in those days, it was the United States and Canada, it was Europe and it was Japan. And Europe was number three. And, uh, Num, you know, one and two was always a, a toss-up, depending on the title between Japan and and the states, and that was really because of the large influence of uh, of Coinop, and then the consoles with Nintendo and Sega. They did look down on European software um, initially, uh, but they then came to respect it. And I mean, a lot of the European software, as such were conversions of games that were done in the States or, you know, Japanese games, etc. I mean, uh, I, I did quite a few of them at Activision, um, particularly with Sega titles like Afterburner and, uh, and stuff like this. It was between us and US Gold. And US Gold, apart from having some uh, Ocean as well, Ocean had strong relationships, you know, they had Operation Wolf and, uh, you know, they had a, a strong relationship with Capcom. Jeff Brown at uh, US Gold and Centersoft had strong relationships with Access and with Epics and a couple, uh, some people in the States. Um, 
And uh, so we took stuff that was created and developed in the States and published it in Europe and um, or converted it and published it in Europe. So that was that was why I think. I think, you know, obviously one big difference about having, you know, the home computer scene was much more successful in Europe than it was in like Japan, for example, where, you know, it was a bit more console focused and America was like the NES. How, how much of a piracy problem did Activision have in Europe at that stage? Yeah, I mean, piracy was a problem not confined to Europe. But, you know, if I step back a little bit, the thing that was really obvious about the British scene was the development talent. The development talent and creativity in Europe was top draw, could compete against any of them. And I remember I was out in the States when I was at Activision and I was walking into places and I was seeing all these incredible setups with workstations and great, great, you know, hosting computers and so forth. And they weren't necessarily any better or as good as what was done in the UK. And I asked an American, pretty good guy uh, from a technical point of view, why he thought that was. And he said, because you guys, your source was normally something like a BBC microcomputer or a Sinclair Spectrum, which against what was available to developers over theirs, meant we had to work harder and get more out of the processors than the counterparts over there who were lazier and not as creative. And I and I actually think that was probably true at the time. And so we, you know, when you start to think of what went on through the BBC, which was the adopted you know, thing in, in our schools and so forth. We got huge amounts out of it. And, and, uh, and uh, I, think, I think that, you know, stood the test of time. Plus there was a cultural thing. I mean, if you looked at movies, we always followed, um, but we were always like number two or three uh, ahead of anyone else. And um, I think we start, it created this hotbed of talent and some of which migrated to the States and so forth. What was the part, second part of the question? It was more about whether piracy was, oh, a, yeah, was a big sorry. issue for, for uh, yeah, on, on the computers. Well, because it, it was, and it was mainly because of tape, right, And uh, which was very easy to pirate. And uh, I remember I did a Newsnight program where we tracked and followed them around in the, in the UK. I also remember I went out to Singapore uh, when we were under the ownership of, um, of Argus Press Software, and uh, a member of the board was a guy called Tim Goldblythe, who is also and Michael Spicer, who's in the government. And we went out to Singapore as part of a British trade delegation. And uh, I was out there, and we were all being uh, politically correct and saying all the right things. And this Chinese guy came up to me and said, "Do you realise your software?" is being pirated in Singapore. And I said, no, why? He said, come with me. Now, why I did this, I don't know. I just jumped in his car and went off with him. And he took me around the back streets, took me into this place, and there were all our games. And actually, they wow. were pretty pretty good. And so I said to the guy, the owner of the shop, I said, uh, these are my games. He said, no, no, they're mine. I said, no, no, they're mine. That's my copyright. And he said, no, I made them here in the shop. They're mine. And that was their logic. And so I started to do something about it. 
And uh, I had an interview with a newspaper out there called The Straits Times, and which was everywhere because this guy was the official distributor of Sinclair. And, uh, right. and so I called Sinclair about it. And anyhow, the next thing I got a call from um, British Electric Traction, um, who'd bought, who was the ultimate holding company, and told, telling me to back off and not do this because it wasn't good for relationships. And uh, so I had to drop it. But uh, piracy was a big problem everywhere. And I mean, there were some of us reckoned, you know, depending on the game, anywhere three to 10 times copies were out in the open market. And that started to have an impact on the industry overall. So it was a big problem. And I mean, you know, if you bring it fast forward to today, I remember going out to China in the very early days and talking to companies like Shanda, who were struggling with this. And they said, well, you may as well give the game away free. And really, that was the prelude to free to play because they couldn't beat the pirates, no matter how sophisticated encryption they had and so forth. So they again changed the game design gave it away and then went back to a coin-op model where you design it for people to keep you know paying micro transactions to get through the game well in 1991 you joined acclaim entertainment and the simpsons at the time was like worldwide huge hit and they were releasing kind of simpsons games um did, did you guys work closely with the simpsons people at all yeah I mean, it was fantastic. I mean, we did all the Simpsons games, you know, Krusty's Funhouse, the whole lot. We, You know, you have to work closely um, initially with Box, but also Matt Groening on the game design. Um, some of the development was done in the UK as well. Um, and so we did work closely with them. And I'll never forget, because in those days in video games, you had five licenses, uh, a license for five games granted by Nintendo and the same by Sega. And, um, you know, a claim bought a company called LJN. So in that way, we could have 10 games a year um, to get out there. And um, Nintendo was distributed by a company down in um, in Portsmouth where Mike Hayes was the head of marketing. And we spoke and he uh, agreed to promote The Simpsons. And when I went down there to do it all, it was using Bart to promote Mario and, uh, and the SNES system. And uh, I told him I was irritated by that. Um, but it also led ultimately to us breaking open distribution. We were the first people to do that. We broke, and it was pretty brave at the time because we escaped the clutches of the hardware, uh, the platform holders, and did our own distribution using um, Polygram um, for the physical stuff and then all the uh, video stores because they were open from 8 in the morning to 10 at night. Um, and that, that was the way we could break it open and open up the whole market, which is what the market benefits from today. Yeah, and I mean, I, I remember, you know, as a 10-year-old a kid getting Bart versus the Space yeah. Mutants packed in with my Amiga, my Amiga 500, it came yeah. with it. And um, seeing that introduction animation, you know, it was cartoon perfect. And obviously Bart Simpson was the coolest character in the world for 10-year-old boys at that time. Yeah. So you hit the market perfect. Yeah, I mean, it was... Uh, but the language, right, and the, you know, the whole terminology and the style, I mean, it became a whole thing right the way, it, you know, across the, uh, yeah, it was great. And, of course, it was truly global. And they were good to work with. And they're just, you know, I've had the privilege of working with those guys and in later life, the South Park guys. And, you know, 
it's grown through a generation where they've embraced video games so they get it and they're good to work with and they have their own views and you have a pooling of creative resources which becomes very fertile. Well, if we're talking about massive hits in the early 90s, I, mean, I remember that Acclaim handled the uh, the home ports of Mortal Kombat, which was a legendary... I mean, my jaw dropped when I first played that in the yeah. arcades. Um, and the hype around that game as well. I mean, what do you remember about that game and kind of building up that media hype? And did you get any backlash from, you know... <laughs> I remember there's a lot of outrage about the blood in the game, which looks very tame today, those original games, but at the time was quite sure. Yeah, no, I got hauled up in all sorts of areas to answer for it and lots of aggressive letters from uh, people and so forth. But we knew, I mean, you know, it's the same thing. It came out of Midway, coin-op, and, um, you know, we saw it. We wanted to do it. They agreed to license it and and for the most part the relationship was pretty harmonious and then to take it over here but what we um, if there was one thing acclaim was literally brilliant at it was marketing which was led by a guy called rob holmes who was a pure genius at it and uh, and a guy called sam goldberg and they came up with a campaign which was filmed down in Wall Street with a load of kids showing aggression with their hands up in the air going, Mortal Kombat. And uh, so I did things like that. And then I sponsored the, there was big boxing matches between Chris Eubank and Nigel Benn, which, which they were hyping up as war. So I sponsored those matches. So on the ring floor, it had Mortal Kombat and, uh, and such like. Anyhow, by this time, Acclaim was pretty well established in Europe. We had all our offices, France, Germany, Spain, Italy, etc. And I came back with this um, outtake of the marketing, uh, of the TV commercial that we were going to use. And, um, you know, the French looked at it and said, oh, this will never work in France. The Germans put their head between uh, hands and said, you cannot do this in Germany and so forth. Now, our budgets were such, they were pretty big budgets. So I allowed them to go out and get their creatives on making their own TV commercials for each territory. And they went off and did it and they came back and I didn't like any of it. And so I then exercised CEO control, if you like, and said, you're going to use it. Anyhow, the next thing was it got an award in Germany. It, you know, carried the got them all carried away in France and it became the campaign that ran everywhere uh, that embraced everything and we put it out there we put it you know in in movie theaters we put it on billboards we put it on tv and uh, you know we did the whole thing and of course as you say it attracted I think it was Anne Whittacombe at the time calling me about it I had to appear before the senate who read uh, read out this this text and they said do i recognize it and i said yes and they said why i said because it's the instructions for mortal combat and i think it was joe lieberman looked up and he said you think that's right i said i think gamers can distinguish between fantasy and reality and politicians can't so i've never thought we were out there being irresponsible um killing people or you know video games it, it didn't create um um, Moss Side in Manchester or the Gorbals in Glasgow. Kids from an early age would be in forests breaking twigs and pointing them at each other as though it was games. So I didn't mind the debate um, and my conscience was clear 
and we were breaking through to a mass market. And uh, and as you say, by today's comparisons, it's tame. Must admit, though, it, it did make us want to play the game even more. Of course. All that stuff it always good. does, right? <laughs> it's a Sex Pistols moment, you know. Yeah. Well, let's talk about an- another game that had, um, I remember, had massive hype, probably the biggest hype of any game in the 90s. Um, and, you know, Acclaim published this, Rise of the Robots. And I remember, you know, the, there was a lot around that game that it's going to have, you know, the, the, the music from Brian May, and it's going to have this incredible artificial intelligence that we'd never seen in a fighting game before. And then when the reviews came out, it all kind of fell a bit flat. I mean, what do you kind of remember about that then? And was that kind of a game that failed to deliver? Yeah, I mean, I think you're being polite to me. Um, in terms of the <laughs> reviews, it was probably, um, it takes, it's up there for about the worst game published. Um, um, the concept we like, it, it, we had a guy working for us called Andy Wood, I think a lot of, and he worked with the development group up in Manchester and they came up with this concept that we liked. Plus he knew Brian May and he could access Brian May. So, you know, I've seen loads of game treatments over the years that when you start off, they look great. And a lot of uh, people don't realize this, but when it comes together at the end, it's not so great, but that one was actually poor. And so the reviews and the backlash that we got were uh, fully justified. And with the benefit of hindsight, probably shouldn't have published it, but we did. Yeah, I guess after all that hype, you couldn't have not put it out. Yeah, you don't, you know, when people talk to me about uh, things, I mean, you don't have a 100% uh, track record. And when people talk to me about someone so who's got 100%, they've either done one thing or they're probably a liar. Yeah. And and that's the thing with that game. I mean, I remember I got it for Christmas, um, 1995, and I remember booting it up on like 13 floppy disks. And graphically, you know, it was groundbreaking graphically. I'd never yeah. seen that kind of smooth animation, but it, yeah, the gameplay areas where it kind of fell Yeah, that, I mean, it, it, again, hindsight's a wonderful thing. We should have probably given it more time, but we also had memory mm. constraints because of the graphics. Um, you know, so... Uh, yeah, I mean, anyhow, it wasn't it, it wasn't our finest hour. I was quite surprised to see that it got a sequel, though, Rise to Resurrection. I mean, how <laughs> did they kind of sell that to, to, to get a, to well, a sequel? Well, I think though? that was Andy Wood pushing it like mad and having his own uh, ambitions in the space. But I don't think it fared a lot better. Well, it's nice to hear someone finally talk about Rise of the Robots because most people kind of serve <laughs> it, so we, we appreciate yeah. that. It's a big black <laughs> spot. No one knows about what happened. Yeah, you, you have to take them on the chin when it goes against you. You know, everyone's got them. Yeah, I, I was wondering, during the kind of console wars, it was massively heated with, uh, you know, Sega and Nintendo. Were, were you guys getting pressure from the different companies to, or, or like incentives and stuff like that uh, to to kind of port and have the better port for their system. Yeah, I mean, uh, and I don't blame them for that. I mean, we had relationships with both because, you know, back in the early days, I licensed so much product from Sega, um, where Nick was also at, at Sega. But, I mean, I had a good relationship with the head of Sega, Nakayama, and and so forth. And, um, and he was uh, a pretty decent supporter of, of Acclaim. But, the closest relationship of all was the relationship between Nintendo and Acclaim, which no one else had. I mean, it was a closer relationship than that enjoyed by, you know, our competitors like EA 
because they wouldn't support everything. And Acclaim was a big supporter uh, of Nintendo and came into existence because of Nintendo, because Greg Fishback had flown after he left RCA Records, he flew out to uh, Kyoto and he got a license to publish um, on the Nintendo platform, but he didn't have a company. The license was granted in the name of Greg Fishback originally. And then when the company happened, everything was changed changed over. But Nintendo were great supporters and the original starting points of, of a claim was to take games from Japan and badge them with American licenses like Knight Rider and and so forth. And that started to put a claim on the on the map. So the relationship was always closer with Nintendo. And when Acclaim bought a comic book company, Valiant, within there was um, Turok. And Nintendo wanted an exclusive product from Acclaim that would not be on any other platform. Um, we gave them Turok. And, um, you know, that became a big hit too. And obviously, as you've already alluded to, Nintendo offered great incentives by way of marketing initiatives. um, And it worked for both companies. Well, that transition from 16 to 32-bit consoles was, you know, a a bit of a tricky time because I remember you had so many consoles that came onto the market that were a bit flash in the pan, like, you know, the Amiga CD32 and the Atari Jaguar and, you know, systems that weren't around for very long. And then we had the Sega Saturn coming along and the PlayStation, the N64. I mean, was it kind of hard for a claim to pick the right systems to back, you know, stuff like the Mega CD coming along as well that kind of muddied the water? Yeah, uh, there was a certain level of compromise uh, because, you know, supporting those platforms or risk losing support in the future. But the real issue, was the inventory risk because, you know, until the PlayStation came along, we were really on cartridge. And if you got it wrong, and you have to pay up front. So in terms of a cash model, it was all cash outflow. I mean, you funded the development, which, you know, 12 to 18 months in those days, you had to fund the manufacturing um, to fairly long lead times. You would push it out at retail, who would take 90 days to pay you. So the, the risk was in that inventory and uh, it was a destructive force to a lot of companies claim included but not just it not just a claim um and then you did have the um the thing that sits on the top of it is the relationship between the hardware vendors and to navigate that was not necessarily an easy task in keeping them all happy and then of course as you rightly pointed out playstation came into the market Microsoft with Xbox came into the market and the landscape started to change. And, uh, you know, clearly at the end, the claim didn't do a very good job of that. I think its product quality um, was not where it needed to be, even though it owned a significant development resource because we bought Probe, we bought iguana we bought sculptured software so we had this development resource but uh, i don't i think it was a weakness if you asked me to point to any one area i would say it was the weakness of the product development versus some of our competitors like ea who i've got nothing but admiration and respect for and the people there were they kind of trying to hit that more like risky adult gamer market as as you know the playstation came out uh gamers kind of evolved into that market because i heard there was a few like gimmicks that kind of backfired one yeah. was famously um 
BMX triple X. Yeah, and also name your child a Turok as well. So. <laughs> yeah, that was different. Um, I mean, the games, we were trying to appeal to a broader audience and we were being encouraged by the hardware platform, particularly Sony. Uh, I mean, you know, we started off in a business which was pretty young, particularly on Nintendo. Right. And, uh, you know, you, you might talk about 12 to 16 year old males at one point in time. And now we were going into a market which was four to 40 year olds and you had to appeal. Plus, you had regional differences as well um, that you had to do. So the marketing side of those initiatives was really a European thing, um, you know, paying uh, speeding fines in France, headstones in in cemeteries in the UK. And that was um, Phil Lay, who was formerly at Sega and then went to Sky, and a guy called Simon Smith-Wright, who, funnily enough, went to EA. And for the most part, they worked. But in terms of some of the development, um, particularly, you know, desperate sensationalism for things like BMX Triple X, that clearly was a monumental failure and shouldn't have happened. What was the story with that then? Because I know that got quite a, a backlash. What was the whole scenario around that, that BMX Triple X? Well, we'd had code because we were doing things like ATV and, and other BMX games that we could use. Public company, we needed to get product out. Um, uh, to meet quarterly objectives and cash flows and things like that. And there were people in the States that thought that that, you know, the market was now opening up in the way that movies had done. So you could have a segment in there which appealed to a more adult audience. And some of the stats that came back was suggesting just that. Plus, when it was announced, the feedback, we were getting was phenomenal the difference was because it was an environment controlled by retail the retailers did not share that view objected to it basically didn't stock it um, some of the other sponsors or licenses a uh, license or didn't uh, objected to it and uh, so forth and it shouldn't you know i you know there's you can't hide behind the fact they shouldn't have done it they did do it it was never going to work in europe but uh, it didn't work in the US either. And there was a lot of that kind of sexuality in games with like um, Lara Croft being sexualized and yeah, Dead or Alive, alive and yeah. stuff like that around that time uh, as that market kind of increased. Yeah. yeah. I mean, one of the big things about Tomb Raider and Lara Croft were the cheats and the codes, right, which were readily available out there because everyone wanted to get in and uh, and undress Lara Croft, you know. So there was a big element in gaming, almost this underground culture um, where that appealed. And, uh, you know, it is... Uh, you know, you look at you look at TV today and uh, and look at films and things like that and what's acceptable, what's not acceptable, and what appeals to what audience, and at what point do you impose censorship? I mean, look at Grand Theft Auto and, uh, yeah. and so forth. So, you know, you have to look beyond a, a certain segment, and uh, is it our job to sit and uh, tell everyone what they can and can't have? 
Well, Acclaim, I mean, you know, had a great legacy of some incredible titles. Um, and then, you know, in, in 2004, I know they fell for bankruptcy. And it looked, it look, you know, from what I've seen, it looked quite a messy end to the company. Yeah. I mean, you know, obviously, what was kind of – what happened from your perspective and how did you end up moving on to Codemasters then? What, <laughs> yeah, that was a horrible time. I mean, I've been with Acclaim uh, for uh, 13 years. You know, I built the operations outside the United States. I brought people in. Either, you know, if I had to point to one thing I'm pretty proud of in my career in the industry, it's bringing people in and giving them a career. And so a lot of those people had joined the company because of me and followed me and stayed loyal to me. And Europe was always very successful, uh, always profitable and so forth. And, you know, when it got into trouble in the US, the Americans asked me if I'd go there and run it. Now, the easy thing to do would have been to walk away from it and being the fat cat walking up the road to a competitor. And I couldn't do that. I just could not do that. So I rolled up my sleeves and said, we'll go over there for six months. I didn't take my family because, you know, it was risky and uh, we'll fight the battle. And um, we were on the verge of turning it around, and we didn't. We lost the battle. I still would contend that it could have been saved and should have been saved. When I look at the catalogue and you think of what that would be in today's market, so it was messy, and then you get caught up in all the aspects, all the wonderful aspects of American corporate law, and uh, which is not to be recommended. But what I had done, um, to answer your question, is worked with investment bankers throughout my time at Claim because it was a public company and it took me into areas that I wasn't familiar with because we were either making acquisitions, raising money or, or selling things. And uh, it gave me pretty close contact with the investment banking community. And then coupled with that, obviously, being around in Britain for as long as I have, you're into the folklore of Britain. And within the folklore yeah. of Britain is the Darling family and obviously Codemasters. So I knew the, the Darlings. And, um, and at the time, I was actually, after a claim, I was trying to buy IDOS backed by Francisco Partners, uh, a US-based uh, private equity company. And um, while I was doing that, camped in rooms in Wimbledon. I got a call from someone who I hadn't seen for a number of years, but had dealt with uh, at a claim, which was a guy called Enon Kreitz, who ran Fox Kids, left Fox Kids. I, did, I asked him where he was going, and he said to me, who knows, maybe video games. And he called me about four years later and completely out of the blue and said he was in investment banking. He was with Benchmark Capital and he'd invested in Codemasters, and could I tell him anything about it? So uh, I I kept telling him things and what I thought, etc. And one day he uh, he invited me up to London to have breakfast with him in their office, which was in Balderton Street, hence they're now called Balderton. And um, I walked in, he wasn't there. I went into a conference room. There was coffee and croissants at one end. I picked up the the coffee jug i picked up a cup and i never quite got the coffee in the jug before the door burst open and enon stood there saying rod i want you to be the new ceo of codemasters and uh, <laughs> and i put the thing down and i said enon nice to see you after all this time 
and I told him I wouldn't do it because I lived in southern England and they were uh, they were in the uh, Midlands. But I said I'd help him if he there were any issues. Anyhow, it was a May bank holiday weekend. I was at home. There were some friends of mine with me, and uh, someone knocked at the door, answered the door, and Enon was stood there, and he said, Rod, I'm going to make you see sense. And on the Tuesday, I started at Codemasters. <laughs> Very yeah, persuasive. that was how it happened. Well, Rod, you know, we, we could talk to you all night about, you know, your incredible memories uh, from the, you know, just covering that, you know, 40-odd years then. I mean, obviously... <laughs> We all heard the news last week that Microsoft bought, bought Activision for $68 billion. So that kind of proves what an industry you and your contemporaries created, that, you know, it's worth that much to I them. I know, it's what Mel Croucher writes about. He's, you know, and, and another guy wrote to, sent me a text just the other day, and he said, have you still got your shares? And, uh, you know, I wish. He said, but Mel's Crouch, Mel Croucher's final thing was, where did we go wrong? And uh, I always believed in the industry. I mean, don't get me wrong, I didn't think, I could, anyone could predict at that time that a company that had also gone through its troubled times. Don't forget Activision when Bobby Kotick got it had been in Chapter 11 in the US. So it was a very – video games were, were volatile. I mean, I asked Polygram if they would ever buy a video game company, and Alan Levy, who was the head of it, said no because there's no catalog. Well, today, if you look at the IP that crosses over formats, crosses over generations of hardware, there's more catalog than than what there is in the music industry. But the volatility back in those days made it, you know, the British financial community, who can't wait to get into it at every opportunity today, steered well clear of it. You know, you look at what happened to IDOS and, and things like this. So we were in the Wild West, but I always believed that video games would become the entertainment medium of choice for people and not just for the young. And I did an academy in uh, Maida Vale in London, and uh, we, we were at a prize-giving day, and, you know, the academies are all very political with all the political parties claiming credit. And so the kids had had all these speeches from the headmasters and various uh, dignitaries representing political parties. And, you know, I was, I was getting bored. And uh, then the headmaster asked me if I'd say a few words. And I had nothing prepared, but I was minded of Larry, um, um, uh, the Oracle guy, Larry Allison, thing to the Senate when he said, "Is Microsoft uh, a monopoly?" And he asked how many of them have used Office, and of course they all did. And so I stood before yeah. these kids and I said, "How many of you play video games?" And lots of the hands went up. Most of the hands went up. And I said, well, look, let me tell you something. You can be a musician. You can be an artist. You can be a programmer. You can be a data scientist. You can be a marketeer. You can be a sales guy. That's what video games offer you as a career today. And your job is to do well at school and come and knock on my door and make me employ you. Because that's what video <laughs> games have done. I mean, it's given people yep. careers in ways that if you went to a career officer in a school years ago, wouldn't even come up. I talk at schools mm -hmm. about it today. I did one in London a couple of months ago. And I asked, the, you know, I was talking to the kids. The staff had brought me in and I'd stopped everything and turned to the kids, uh, turned to the staff and said, do you give these kids advice on being influencers? You know, because it's a different world and you have to look at it. Um, and I've always believed video games would offer choice in terms of careers to um, 
the next generation, whatever that next generation is and wherever that next generation takes the industry. And that's what makes it so exciting. And that's why I've always been a student of the world market. Well, Rod, I think that's a a perfect point to end on there. Um, It has been incredible hearing your stories. And thank you so much for taking the time to uh, come on and share them with us. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Well, it's a pleasure talking to you. And I'm grateful to you for allowing me to relive uh, uh, these events. And it is 40 years and you make an old man very happy. So thank you very much. (laughs) 